0: Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and open it to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to transition this morning into the final chapter of this brief letter that Peter wrote to the believers in Asia. And I just want to bite off the first two verses here just to kind of allow us the opportunity to wade into this last chapter, and so it's Second Peter chapter 3, and we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. Peter writes, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Father, thank you that we hold in our hands that which Peter was referring to and reminding his readers to go back to. And so we thank you that we um, can go back to the Bible again this morning and to have it speak to us. I pray that you would grant me grace as I seek to explain and expound and exhort uh, this text and that you would grant. These hearers who have come today, uh, grace as they seek to hear and to heed and put into practice what this text says, and so uh, we ask that you would be glorified and honored uh, as we receive your word, um, not as the word of man, but as it actually is uh, your word, and it would accomplish its work uh, in our lives, helping people come to Christ and become more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I assume that many of you have heard of and may have even tuned into Back to the Bible, which is an international Christian ministry based in Lincoln, Nebraska. Anybody ever listen to Back to the Bible radio? Yeah, good. I figured more people in this hour would because it's kind of the senior hour, right, to the most part. Um, this is kind of a, a ministry that was founded back in 1939. It was known for broadcasting Bible teaching all over the world via radio. And over the years, some of the more well-known Bible teachers who were featured on the program were the founder of Theodore Epp, uh, Warren Wearsby, Woodrow Kroll, and more recently, David Platt. Now, their radio broadcast no longer airs in the United States, but their passion remains the same. Listen to what their purpose statement is, and I like this a lot. He sa- it goes like this, to use the latest technology to reach the world with the life-transforming power of God's word in order to help people develop a relationship with Jesus Christ by equipping and motivating them to engage Scripture daily. I can get behind that. How about you? Um, in fact, Peter could get behind that. Uh, Peter same this, shared this same passion, the same purpose, and while he had limited to no technology back in his day, writing letters, pointing people back to the Bible, was his way of reaching them with the life-transforming power of God's Word and equipping them and motivating them to regularly engage with Scripture so that they would never stop growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn quickly back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 2. This was one of my favorite verses that we covered when we went through 1 Peter together. Uh, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may, what? Grow in respect to salvation. And then back to 2 Peter chapter 3, notice verse 15. And this is a little spoiler alert. This is where we're headed here in chapter 3. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation... Peter said, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness, but, what? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how Paul ended his second letter to the believers in Asia Minor. This morning, I want to look at how he started this third and final chapter of this letter. And the first thing I want to say is that he devoted the remaining 18 verses of this letter to defending the return of Christ and how that should affect the way we live our lives. Apparently, the false teachers, who Peter had just got done railing against in the previous chapter, were teaching that Jesus was not coming back, and therefore they and their followers could continue living in sin without fear of any final judgment. But at the same time, by denying the second coming of Christ, they were robbing true believers of the hope of heaven. Notice verses 3 and 4. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, the significant expression to zero in on there in verse 3 is, in the last days, which refers to the time period between the first and second coming of Christ. In other words, the the last days began when Christ came the first time, and they will come to a climax at the next great event in God's redemptive plan, which is the second coming of Christ. And as you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended back to heaven, and while the disciples were gawking into the sky watching this uh, amazing Uh, experience, two angels appeared to them and declared that he would come back the same way he went into heaven. And so ever since that moment, followers of Christ have lived in the anticipation of his imminent return. Even this morning, as believers, we, we live in light of his imminent return, that he could come back today. Now, this is a foundational essential doctrine of the Christian faith which should influence how we as Christians live our lives. It should motivate us to live holy and pure lives. Notice just if you take one turn of a page to the right, you'll probably hit 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. Which says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We just sang about that, didn't we? And then verse 3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. And Peter made the same connection here in chapter 3 between the second coming and holy living. Notice verse 11. This is 2 Peter 3.11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And so if Christ is coming back, we need to live our lives in such a way that we were ready for his return, that we would not be caught off guard, uh, that we would not be happy to see him and he would not be happy to see us, right? But if Christ is not coming back, as the false teachers were claiming, then there's no point in living for Christ. In fact, Christianity without the return of Christ is nonsense. If Christ is not coming back, we are all wasting our time here this morning. We might as well just get up and all go home. And do whatever we want. Live any way we want to live if Christ isn't coming back. So all that to say, we are living in the last days. And Peter warned us that there will be those who mock and scoff at the thought of Christ's return and a final judgment in order to justify their sinful lifestyles. Your Bible might say mockers or scoffers. Same meaning there. But even though these false teachers mock or scoff or deny and try to explain away the return of Christ, Peter is saying here in these verses, we must cling to the clear teaching in both the Old and New Testaments that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the world in righteousness. Now, as those living in the last days, we should expect mockers to assault and make fun of the truths of God's word. And we should expect to see and hear all sorts of things that are contrary to God's word, which could easily pollute our minds and persuade us to think and or live unbiblically. And that's why Peter was so adamant about reminding his readers and us to always go back to the Bible and to never forget what the Bible says about what we believe and how we are living our lives that, 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 are, that, that, that may be attacked or called into question. And so his point is simple. In a world that doesn't take the Bible seriously and mocks us and laughs at us for believing what the Bible teaches, we must remain steadfast and unwavering in our biblical convictions so we're not led astray from the truth. I think that's the point of the entire letter. That's why I chose to title it "Steadfast Stirring Reminders for Standing Firm in the Last Days." I get the last days from this verse, verse three. I get the word "I got the word steadfast" from verse seventeen, and of course, I've got the stirring reminders um, from uh, not just this passage here in. in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, but back in chapter 1, verse 12. Go back there for a second with me. First, P- second Peter, chapter 1, verse 12. Peter clearly provides his thesis statement, if you will, right? Well, what is the purpose of this letter? He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, also, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. Well, here in the first two verses of chapter 3, Peter repeated what he's already said about stirring us up by way of reminder. But this time, he gets specific about the truth that his readers had already been established in and the things that he wanted them to be able to call to mind after his departure. What were those things? And and, and what was that 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 truth. Well, he was referring to the scriptures as revealed in both the Old and New Testaments. Notice he mentions the holy prophets and the apostles there in verse two. Peter shared the conviction of the reformers that the Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. In other words, you've heard me say it this way: the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of what we believe and how we live. our beliefs, our lifestyles should not be based on man's opinions, church traditions, or Christian creeds and confessions, as good as they might be, but on the scriptures alone. Why? Because the Bible is the final authority for everything we believe and everything we do. Peter also knew that mastering the Bible, mastering the Scriptures, was critical to not being confused or corrupted by those who distort the Scriptures, whether intentionally or unintentionally. The better we know the truth of God's Word, the less likely our minds will be infected with error or our lives will be influenced by error. You remember the, the words that Paul spoke to the Galatian believers, Galatians 3.1, who has bewitched you? You are running well. Who 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 put a stumbling block in front of you? Or what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. He says as a result we're to no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. I mean, this is why it's so important for us to read our Bibles, to hear the Bible preached, because it will safeguard us in these last days in which false teachers and false teaching is so rampant. But if we don't know our Bibles, guess what? We're sitting ducks. And Peter didn't want his readers or us to get picked off by false teachers, and so after a lengthy discourse on false teachers, he returned to the subject that he ended with in the first chapter. Again, go back to chapter one, and I want you to see, a, I think, a very interesting and important connection here. In chapter 1, verse 19, Peter said, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so here... Peter emphasized the surety and the sufficiency of the supernaturally spirit-inspired scriptures. And then he goes on this, I'm not gonna call it a rabbit trail, um, but if you were to turn chapter two into a parenthesis, and it's all about false teachers, notice how this transitions right from chapter 1, verse 21 to chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by a reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And it's as if the, the, the Peter's readers here were torn over who they should believe. Should they, should they believe the false teachers? Or should they believe Peter and the apostles? And so what did Peter do? He directed them back to the Bible. He said, you want to know who to listen to? Go back to the Bible. And whoever is saying what the Bible says, that's who you should listen to. And whoever's not saying what the Bible says, you shouldn't listen to. And so in verses one and two here, what Peter does is he takes us back to the Bible, and he points us to the two sources of truth which will keep us from being led astray by false teachers. What are they? Number one, the prophetic word, or the Old Testament, and the apostolic word, or the New Testament. These are the the two things that he wanted us to remember. But before we consider each of these, let's consider why we must be reminded of them notice how he starts here he says this is now beloved the second letter i'm writing to you that expression there beloved means dear friends or loved ones it's really a heartfelt uh, affection for his readers this is one of peter's favorite expressions in fact back in first peter Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage wars against the soul. And then again in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. And then now here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, which is the first of four occurrences in this chapter, look at verse 8. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, Beloved. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Verse 17, you, therefore, beloved, be on your guard. So Peter wanted to reassure his readers and us of his tender love for us and his genuine concern for our spiritual welfare. And having just had to endure an entire chapter on false teachers and breathe in their sinful stench for 21 verses, this opening address comes as a breath of fresh air and really provides a a much-needed relief and comfort and, and exhibits Peter's pastoral care for his readers and for us. It's as if he puts down the club that a shepherd would use to aggressively drive away the predators to protect the sheep. And he picks up the staff that a shepherd would use to affectionately guide and and care for the sheep. It's as if he wanted his readers to know that they weren't dumb dogs returning to their vomit. They weren't putrid pigs returning to the mud, but but they were precious sheep who were near and dear to his heart. I mean, that's the context, right? He just got done, verse 22, talking about dogs returning their vomit, pigs going back to the mire. That was the way he described Paul's teachers, but he knew he was addressing people that were unlike that. You're not dumb dogs or future pigs. You are precious sheep. And so he says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. Some suggest that Peter was referring to a lost letter, sort of like some of the lost letters to the Corinthian church, or actually to the first two chapters of 2 Peter because it seems like they stand alone and chapter three here stands by itself, and so some say that this is the second, that was the first, first chapter, second first letter, this is the second letter. But I think the most normal, natural way to understand what letter he was referring to is what? 1 Peter, I mean, why does it have to be any more complicated than that? What do you have in your Bible? 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I'm good with that, how about you? I don't have to come up with some other tricky, uh, nuanced way of of saying, well, perhaps there was another letter here. I think it's referring to 1 Peter. And both 1 and 2 Peter were intended by Peter, to stir us up or awaken us so we wouldn't become complacent and apathetic to the truth, which oftentimes happens, especially to those of us who are exposed to the truth as much as we are exposed to the truth in a Bible church setting. And sometimes we grow so accustomed to the truth that we take it for granted and we get lulled to sleep by it, sometimes even literally. I've even fallen asleep in sermons before, not up here. You're like, you did? You were like, sleep preaching? What were you doing? I didn't even notice. I mean, when I'm out there or at other places where I'm hearing the preaching of God's word, I I struggle sometimes to stay awake. And um, if that's you, hey, you're in good company. There was a guy in the book of Acts named Eutychus, and uh, he was listening to the Apostle Paul, uh, and he didn't just fall asleep. He didn't just doze off. He died. He was up in the rafters, and apparently he dozed off And fell out of the rafters and hit the ground and died. And thankfully, there was an apostle in the room and he raised him back to life. Um, So if you're prone to falling asleep in church, just make sure you're sitting close to the ground, okay? Um, But the point is we need to be regularly aroused so that the enemy doesn't take advantage of our spiritual drowsiness or or lethargy. You think think about the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, hey, pray. And instead they what? They slept. And little did they know that Satan was prowling around like a roaring lion in that that garden. And he was about to have his way with the betrayal of Judas and the the arrest of Jesus there. And so we see these examples, uh, these illustrations in Scripture. We also have some exhortations. Um, For example, in Romans chapter 13, Paul said, do this. Verse 11, knowing the time that it is already an hour for you, the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So he's wanting to stir us up. And particularly he wants to stir up what? He says your sincere mind. That phrase, its sincere mind, is thinking that is pure, unmixed, untainted, uncontaminated by the alluring influences of the world. It implies that we're able to, to think through matters or evaluate situations and steer clear of incorrect thoughts or ideas and avoid erroneous convictions or conclusions. Robert Mounts, who's a more obscure commentator, but I always love what he has to say, said it this way, quote, The idea is that by his letters, Peter wants to stir up or stimulate their capacity for morally sound spiritual judgment. In other words, Peter wanted us to have biblical discernment, to see that what false teachers are saying isn't true. And that's basically how you define discernment, I think, is just it's the ability to differentiate between truth and error and to recognize the difference, not just between good and bad or good and evil, but good and best in some cases another commentator said this, quote, this involves more than the mental act of recalling what had once been learned. It's the dynamic process of applying the truths to the new situations and problems that the believer confronts. Listen, we are constantly being faced with new situations and new problems. We're confronted by these things on a daily basis, and we have to know how to Uh, We need to know, first of all, what the Bible says about those things, and then how to uh, practically apply those truths to that situation or that problem. That word sincere, the the literal translation is sun-judged, sun-judged, and it comes from the English word there, or at least the English word kind of bears us out. The word sincere comes from two Latin words, sincera, meaning without wax. And I'm sure some of you have heard this before, but in Bible times, potters would use wax to fill in holes and cover up cracks in pottery before they sold it. And the only way these imperfections could be detected was by holding that cup or that jug up to the sun to see if you were getting a, a good quality item. Likewise, the only way to detect if what someone is teaching has any air in it is to hold it up to the light of God's word. And so if you want to keep from being tainted or, or tempted by false teachers and, and their teaching, we must be like the believers in Berea who compared everything with the scriptures, right? Acts 17 11. That's what we mean by being a good, what? Berean, right? So all that to say, Peter wasn't introducing some new novel idea that he wanted them to know or be reminded of. He was simply calling them back to the basic truths of the Bible that they already knew. And so he gets to the two sources here of truth. First of all, the prophetic word. He says that you should remember, right? I'm stirring your sincere mind by way of reminder and specifically, you should remember, first of all, the word spoken before and by the holy prophets as opposed to the unholy prophets that he just got done describing in in chapter two. And, And this is how the Old Testament Writers are referred to often in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verse 70, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, said this as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. In Acts chapter 3, verse 21, Peter said this how God sent. The Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of, period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And so, again, when, when Peter mentions these holy prophets, in light of what he's about to say in the rest of this chapter, which is all about what? The second coming of Christ and the judgment to come, that I think what Peter is referring to here are all the prophecies and promises in the Old Testament about the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. And there's way too many for us to read this morning in our time together, but let me just read one, Isaiah 13, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. This is the prophet Isaiah, writing thousands of years right, ago from today. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put on end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And if you're familiar with any of 2 Peter chapter 3, Uh, there's a lot of similar language that Peter uses about the coming judgment of God. And so Peter wanted them to remember the prophetic word, the Old Testament, but he also wanted them to remember the apostolic word, the New Testament. Notice he goes on to say that you should remember the words spoken before and by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And Jude says something almost Identical in Jude 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their ungodly lusts. But I think this expression here that we're to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Is evidence that the words of Jesus were accurately transmitted by the apostles. Their teaching clearly represented the words of Christ. They, they simply passed on to others what Christ had taught them. In fact, the early church, that was the conviction of the early church because whenever they gathered together uh, and spent time together, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves first and foremost to what? The apostles' teaching. Paul mentions the apostles uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, who served as the foundation of the church along with the New Testament prophets. I don't think he's talking about Old Testament prophets because he says apostles and prophets. Uh, so these are po- prophets are coming after the apostles. Um, he says that, that God's household has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus' help being the cornerstone. He goes on to talk about how in chapter 4, verse 11, that the Spirit gave to the church, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. This is the New Testament era, New Testament age that he's referring to here. But again, in light of what Peter is about to say about the second coming of Christ, I think Peter was referring to here when he talked about the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, he was referring to all that Jesus and the apostles said about his return and the final judgment. And by that time, Peter, uh, by, by the time that Peter wrote this letter, most of Paul's epistles had been written, and Peter viewed them as having equal authority to the Old Testament. We already read this in verse 15, where he says, um, Our beloved Paul. According to the wisdom given him wrote to you, verse 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as do also the rest of the Scriptures. So he's putting Paul's letters on par with the Old Testament. He, 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 he described them at all as Scripture. Luke's Gospel Mark's gospel were probably already in circulation at this time, as were the book of Acts and the epistle of James. Someone has noted this, that in the 260 chapters of the New Testament that the apostles wrote, there are about 300 references to the second coming. 23 out of the 27 books in the New Testament explicitly refer to to Jesus' return and two others allude to it. The only two books that don't mention the return of Christ are Philemon and 1 John. And so back to verse two, notice he links together the Old Testament prophets with the New Testament apostles, and and again, he was placing them on the same level, and he was emphasizing the unity of God's word and, and showing that there is an inseparable connection between the Old and New Testament. You can't understand the Old Testament apart from the New Testament, and you can't understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. You need them both. The church father, Augustine, was known for this famous statement. He said, quote, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Another version reads like this, the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the Old Testament becomes manifest in the new. Or stated, I think, even more simply, Christ is promised in the Old Testament and is revealed in the New Testament. So, what the Bible says about the day of the Lord, which is a reference to the second coming of Christ, the the final judgment of mankind, um, is consistent in both the Old and New Testaments. And so, both the Old Testament and the New Testament provide irrefutable proof of the return of Christ and the judgment of the wicked. And in light of what the false teachers were saying, that there was no second coming and there was no final judgment. That's why Peter kept pointing his readers back to the Bible to prove that this wasn't something that he or the other apostles made up over and over and over again. The Bible clearly declares that Christ will return to judge the world. You can't miss it, there's no denying it. But you wouldn't know that unless you went back to the Bible. And so, this passage specifically is talking about the second coming, and in order to have a rock-solid belief and conviction about that, you need to go back to the Bible, but I think generally, you could say this, there is no better counsel and Advice when you don't know what to think about a certain matter or you don't know what to do in a particular situation then to always go back and examine the scriptures. What do you do when you don't know how to think about a matter? What do you say to someone who comes to you and says, hey, I'm in this situation, I'm not sure what to do? Always go back to the Bible. See what scripture says. Study it out. Figure it out with the help of the Holy Spirit, what does the Bible say about this matter or about this situation? Now, that's the end of the exposition of those two verses. Someone told me after the first service, they said, man, I was trying to figure out how you're going to come up with the whole message out of those two verses. Um, (laughs) Well, I wanted to leave some time for some application. And so I thought a case study would be helpful this morning for us to flesh out today's message and seek to practically apply what Peter was saying in this passage. Again, Peter wanted our minds to remain uncontaminated, untainted by worldly, unbiblical teaching so that we would avoid worldly, unbiblical thinking and living. And his goal in writing this letter was to help us develop spiritual discernment by pushing us back to the Bible in order to seek to apply the truths of Scripture whenever we're confronted with a new situation or or problem that we're not sure how we should think about it or, or what we should do about it. I began this morning by mentioning well known Bible teachers who were featured on the worldwide radio ministry Back to the Bible. I'm sure some of you know uh, another well-known Bible teacher by the name of Alistair Beck, And you may have been, you may be following the the firestorm that uh, was set off by this pastor of Parkside Church in St. Green Falls, Ohio. He's also the popular radio uh, speaker or teacher on uh, Truth for Life. And for those of you that may have not heard, you just kind of crawled out of the cave this morning. Um, the evangelical cave, perhaps, I'm not sure. But let me just lay out for you the scenario. During a recent interview promoting his new book, Alistair recounted being asked by a woman whose grandchild was marrying a transgender individual whether or not she should attend the wedding. And so he first asked this grandmother if her grandchild knew she was a Christian and knew that she did not approve of her grandchild's sinful lifestyle. And after finding that to be the case, he suggested that she go to the wedding and bring a gift and catch them off guard by her love rather than not attend, which would reinforce what they already assume that Christians are critical and judgmental, which we often are. Well, as you can imagine, many are surprised and saddened by the counsel that Alistair gave to this grandmother and have urged him to repent or to recant. I find it interesting that Alistair himself admits that not everybody, even on his own pastoral team, thinks he gave very good advice. (laughs) And yet, rather than walking back his counsel, he's doubled down on it. And as a result, American Family Radio dropped Truth for Life from all their stations and he'll no longer be speaking at the annual Shepherds' Conference hosted by John MacArthur. That's the conference that we're planning on going to in March. Now, let me be clear. I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. In light of today's message, and the overall context of 2 Peter, I am not putting Alistair Begg in the category of a mocker, or implying that he's a false teacher who's denied what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, or an apostate who's abandoned the Christian faith. He is not our enemy. He's a true brother in Christ who has been a faithful minister of the gospel for over four decades. He's been one of my preaching heroes who I admire and respect and have been greatly blessed by as I've followed his ministry the past 30 years. He is a far more godly, gifted man than I will ever be. And there's no question in my mind that he loves the Lord. He loves lost people, and he wants to show Christ's compassion to unbelievers, and I really appreciate his heart to want to lovingly and creatively build bridges to reach unsaved loved ones for Christ. And I don't agree with how he's being blacklisted and canceled and thrown under the bus by, uh, by others after such a faithful track record And how some are saying that they can no longer listen to him or recommend his ministry because he gave bad counsel and and then didn't do himself any favors. And I would agree with this by defending himself in a sermon, misapplying the story of the prodigal son to accuse his critics, which again has never been the tenor of his ministry. It was Calvin who said, even the best theologian is only 80% right. That includes your pastor. That's why you need to be a good Berean, because I got 20% somewhere that I'm not sure, a little shaky, wobbly. I just don't know what it is yet, but maybe you'll point it out sometime, and I'll go, hey, you know what, you're right. The Bible says if anyone thinks he stands, take heed, what? Lest he fall. I think this is a good reminder that even the best of men are men at best. And this should serve as a wake-up call that none of us are above giving unbiblical counsel and making sinful choices. Galatians 6.1, when you're seeking to restore someone who's been caught in the trespass, you should do it gently, and you should also do it looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, but for the grace of God, that could be me. And granted, James 3.1 says that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. But I'm grieved by the evangelical feeding frenzy that's resulted from this and how Christians are so quick to pounce and to pile on. And and while I don't have near the influence or global reach of Alistair Begg, I know what it's like to be a target of discernment bloggers and anonymous comments on the internet and social media. And listen, folks, it is no fun. I also empathize with him because in the past, I've given similar counsel to people who asked me if they should attend a gay wedding because I hadn't formed a a biblical conviction of my own and and I was kind of sitting on the fence and I kind of viewed it as a gray area, an issue of conscience. And in my mind, what mattered most was a person's motive for going or not going. Maybe this fits into that 20% we're talking about. But then I read the answer that John Piper gave when he was asked if he would attend a gay wedding of one of his family members, no less, and it convicted me and convinced me of how I should respond whenever I'm asked that question. Or if ever I'm in that situation where I have to decide what I'm gonna do. Let me read for you a little bit of John Piper's response. He says, it's not a wedding because it's not a marriage. Therefore, attending it as a wedding is to be false, like everyone there is being false. There's no such thing as a so-called same-sex marriage. God has defined marriage as a covenantal unit for life between a man and a woman as husband and wife. This isn't that. Therefore, this is not a marriage, and this is not a wedding. I am not going to lie about it by going. It would be hateful for me to do it, not loving, because it would be confirming a life and a lifestyle that will lead to hell. The Apostle Paul said, do not be deceived, neither be Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. To celebrate this lifestyle is to celebrate the destruction of human beings, and that is hateful. It would be like gathering to celebrate theft, gathering to celebrate drunkenness, gathering to celebrate swindling. It would be like saying, let's all have a meeting and celebrate greed. Let's all have a meeting and celebrate adultery. Anybody that joins in celebrating sin is sinning. I shouldn't sin. And I think one of the most helpful things that I've heard over the last few days is, 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 hey, let's talk about why we go to a wedding. I mean, traditionally, historically, what is the purpose of our attendance at a wedding? We are there to... Um, affirm that, to approve that, to rejoice with that couple, to put our blessing on that. We sign the wedding book, right? Hey, I'm here, um, and, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the bride comes in, and everybody stands up, and then they go through the ceremony, and then they, you know, may, you, you may kiss your bride, and what happens? Everybody claps, and they come down the aisle, and then we go to the reception, and, and uh, it's, just, it's like a celebration, and everybody's happy and joyful, and we're, we're happy for this couple, and they get out on the floor and they dance, and we cheer them on, and that, that's why we go to a wedding. It's a celebration. And so Piper's saying, How can you celebrate basically a pagan ceremony? He said, This ceremony will defile the drama of Christ and the church. God designed marriage to display Christ's covenant to his bride, the church. To celebrate a brideless union as marriage is to distort and deface the parable of the most beautiful act in the world. He says, and the last thing I would say is, my not going is not my drawing away from my child, but his drawing away from me. I am where I have always been, arms wide open to the homecoming prodigal ready to forgive anything. Since I came across that article, I've been asked by members in our church if they should attend the wedding of their gay son. I've even had a grandmother ask me in our church how she should interact with her transgender granddaughter who expects her to use the proper pronouns when she talks to her. That's some messy stuff. so i've been thankful for a mulligan on this one i've been thankful for a, a do over an opportunity to give what i would consider better counsel more biblical counsel but folks the point is we are living in the last days and as the, as as the closer we get and the closer we get to the lord's return the worse things are going to get And it's only a matter of time before we are invited to a gay wedding. If we already haven't been invited to a gay wedding or someone asks our advice whether or not they should attend a gay wedding and we need to be ready with a biblical answer. And how do we come up with a biblical answer? Go back to the Bible and be good Bereans and hold up the the well-intentioned counsel that was given to that grandma to the light of scripture and see if there are any cracks in it and determine if it's consistent with or in conflict with God's word and perhaps has the potential to confuse people as to how to best engage with unbelievers and how to best love unbelievers. I did not bring this up to critique or condemn Alistair Bay. Plenty of others Far more discerning and articulate than me have already done that. I mention it only because it serves as a stirring reminder of why what Peter said in this passage is so vital for all of us who are living in the last days. We've got to figure this stuff out. We've got to know what the Bible says about this kind of stuff. And Scripture is the final authority. On the second coming, and just as it is the final authority on the second coming, it's also the final authority on everything else in faith and practice. What we believe and what we teach and how we live our lives and the counsel that we give and the choices that we make. Listen, I'm not going to be held accountable, thankfully, for anyone outside the four walls of this church. You are the flock that God has entrusted to me to shepherd. And so I want to simply help you to think biblically about everything and to teach you how to accurately interpret and apply God's word to every situation, every problem that you face in life. And and listen, you're not gonna be held accountable for what some other pastor says in some other church or what some guy on the radio says. You're not gonna be held accountable for that. You're gonna be held accountable for what you say and what you think and what counsel you give and the decisions you make. And so like Peter, once again, I point you back to the Bible. And if you want a homework assignment, if you haven't been put in that situation yet where you had to come up with an answer, we learned in 1 Peter that we are to be ready, right? Right? We are to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Are you ready for someone to ask you or invite you to their wedding? Are you ready to respond to someone who says, hey, I was asked to go to this wedding. What should I do? Are you ready with your answer? That's your homework. Get ready. Go back to the Bible. Figure it out. With the help of the Holy Spirit. And then, whenever you become, when it becomes clear to you what the Bible teaches, then you become convinced of that. And you hold true to that for the glory of God and for the good of others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this simple reminder of how important it is for us to always go back to the Bible. Uh, Lord, I pray for my brother, Alistair Begg. I love that guy. He's, he's had an influence in my life. I wouldn't be standing here being who I am were it not for his influence in my life in so many ways. And so would you just work in his heart whatever you're accomplishing, obviously you have ordained this trial for his life and you're accomplishing your uh, sovereign purposes for him to to sanctify him to fill up where he's lacking his faith that he might be mature and complete lacking nothing. Man, I wish I was hoping that when I got to be past seventy, the sanctification thing would be over. I wouldn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. But I guess that's not how it works, Lord. So we just pray we continue to trust you and uh, pray that you would help us to to not be um, the, the first to, to cast stones, but to to look back at our own heart and to know that. At the end of the day, it's not so much about what other people think and say, it's what we think and say and do. And uh, that we would focus on the log in our own eye and trust you to deal with the speck in others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.